Reviewing Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, John Barber, NBC TV, said, At Academy Award time, director Martin Scorsese and author Robert Getchell may well be handed Oscars. They won't have to hand one to Ellen Burstyn, though. Oscar will run over and hug her. Ellen Burstyn, Chris Christopherson, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Rated PG. Everybody, welcome to episode 49 of 70 movies we saw in the 70s. I'm not even gonna do a whole like it's been so long since I just just assume that that's just a given. Anytime it's you been turn a while. on this podcast, it has been three months, I think. Jesus, uh, our last episode was magic. Today it was magic. It was People magic. Loved it. Yeah, <laughs> today we're. Uh, my name is Ben Riser. Across the screen from me is Mr. Scott Lucas. Hi. Um, maybe the the rock star the rock star cinephile combo of choice for. What's going on with you? What are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing over there? What, you, what are the rock stars do you know who are as big cinephiles as yourself? I was trying to think. Um. And don't, don't give me any like local yokels. I'm talking about guys in the big league like yourself. Robbie Robertson. Okay, well that's a good name to bring up on today's episode. Sure. Yeah. I was thinking Mick Jones from The Clash is always putting film. He's always writing lyrics that are like based. What about on that hip hop dude who's like supposed to be like a really uh, big? I can't think of his name, so I don't know why. Questlove. No, 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 no. It, it's some. Guy who's relatively new. He's supposed to be uh, really um, into it. I don't know. The kids know. Anyway, I'm Ben. That's Scott. Today we're talking about Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore from 1974, directed by this guy, Martin Scorsese. Or Scorsese. You say right. Scorsese. I think it was Scorsese in 74. Now it's Scorsese, but I think it was Scorsese in 74. It's still Scorsese for me. Okay. But this movie's got Harvey Keitel, and I'll just get this little anecdote out of the way. My friend Chad, who I was in various bands with, including and mostly the band All About Chad, which was named after Chad, his mom uh, grew up in Brooklyn, and um, um, I believe that Harvey Keitel was um, her boyfriend for a time. Oh, yeah. Um, But... uh, for some reason, Chad and his family would always say Harvey Keitel you. Like that, that's what they call that was like his name. They all they had weird ways of saying lots of stuff, but Harvey Keitel or Harvey Keitel you was one of them. There you go. There's my all Harvey right. Keitel. That's a, that's a great story. <laughs> I'm excited about this one. This is a Me favorite. Me too. Movie. I'm excited for you because Scorsese or Scorsese is, is would you say that he's your guy? He's your yeah. He's your guy. Yeah, He's your favorite director. Without a doubt. And this might be the first Scorsese movie I'd ever seen. And that might definitely was, you know. And I was thinking the same thing is true for me, but at the same time, not having any idea that it was. I don't remember when I actually found out that this was a Martin Scorsese movie. You know, I... I, I right. 
I'm, a, I'm guessing, and I want you can tell your story. For me, it was, I'm pretty sure that I watched the TV series, Alice, and then at some point early on in its run, this was on TV and was known to me to be the origin or was right. I, read, I, I read TV Guide religiously, and so I'm sure I bumped into the description of you read the was, guide. Oh, you're yeah. a fan of the guide. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Couldn't wait. And 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 interestingly, like like mostly would just bounce around from movie to movie. Like I just wanted to read the movie descriptions. I didn't uh-huh. care about the rest of the stuff. Right. But um, so I I was a fan of Alice the show. And I watched some or all of this when it when it hit prime time, probably the same year. You know, this movie's seventy four, and I think Alice started in seventy six. Six. I think seventy six. I'm looking at a thing that says seventy six to eighty five. Okay. So back in the seventies, it would have been at least seventy six before they put this on TV, the movie. So. That's possible. I, I well, remember it being on CBS. I remember yeah. seeing it both primetime and late night. I remember seeing a lot of late night showings. Yeah. But I mean, it had it would have to be at least two years because the thing that happened was still happening in the 70s was that, you know, movies would play and then go away and then come back. Like they were, you know, they would try to right. ride it out in theaters for years. You know, Chinatown played you know, for fucking five years and network played for five years and jaws yeah. played for 10 years. And, but, um, so I'm, so I, I'm saying like, I wasn't, I never put, but you know, I think I was in high school or at least junior high school by the time I connect, but by the time I was into Martin Scorsese as a director and mean streets and taxi driver and raging bull, probably raging bull was the first Scorsese movie I saw in a theater like on its initial release because hmm. I wow. didn't see Taxi Driver in a theater no I didn't either but uh, you know I saw it so many times on television on WGN and I I uh, remember I lied to uh, my dentist and said I saw uh, Raging Bull in a theater and he was so shocked that I thought he was going to call social services <laughs> on my parents I just wanted to talk about the movie with him. You know, he had seen it the night before and I was like, yeah, let's talk about this movie. And he's like, you've seen this? And I said, uh, yeah. Just a look of horror on his face. Did I tell you about having a piano lesson the day that I saw Halloween in a movie theater <laughs> and walking into this piano lesson after seeing Halloween and like shaken to sure. my core, but at the same time had the theme in my head and made my piano teacher help me figure out and she hadn't seen it you know she didn't know anything about it but i was like it's this thing and i think it's this and she's like oh well you can play this on your left hand while you're doing that and so i learned how to play the theme from halloween the day that i saw it because i had to have a piano lesson nice so i think this is going to be a fun movie to talk about in terms of you know what what are the similarities between this and the rest of martin scorsese's movies or his sort of more you know iconic films and what are yeah. the differences how is this an outlier and how is it really not an outlier exactly i think the most interesting thing as far as any of that stuff is that this is you know i was going to say i was going to do a quiz like what's the first movie that ha- what's the first martin scorsese movie that has a female protagonist and from sort of the female point of view and what's the last movie i think the technical answer 
for either one of those questions is not this movie, but I feel like the sort of correct spiritual answer is this movie. Like, this is really his only... And the last one, too? I, I feel like this is his only... Push comes to show. Female-led now, movie. Well, I think, like, okay, Boxcar Bertha, I suppose that's... The, the title character is female, uh-huh. and so that could technically right. count. And... I mean, this is just as much of an assignment as Bar- Boxcar Bertha was. I agree. You know. I, and, and I also... We're also going to talk about Scorsese as hired gun versus Scorsese sort of passion projects. And this is definitely a Scorsese's hired gun movie. But for me, his hired gun movies are, all of them are among my favorites of his entire canon. There's no hired gun movie that he's made like after hours or color of money. Uh, or what's the, what's another one? This one, this one after hours, color of money. I mean, even, even that gets, gets weird like you know uh which movies he didn't develop i mean king of comedy i guess but no you know i mean the only ones that i can really say are hired gun movies are the three that you mentioned color of money after hours and this and i think they're great and i think uh, uh, there's enough of his personality that shows through that to call them hired gun movies it really just kind of does them a disservice and does him a disservice. This movie. Well, I don't mean that. I don't, I certainly anything, don't mean it that way. I don't mean it that way at all. No, I, I know mean, I think you you're don't, right. But I, but also like this attitude that this movie is an outlier and it, and it's, Oh wow. That's surprising. He would do a movie like that. It's like, yeah. I mean, he, those are the same kind of people that don't really count something like age of innocence. You know, right. It's, it's, it just, I, I'm with you, and I also, but I also feel like what's more surprising ultimately is that he didn't do more movies like this. That there aren't more of his movies that have a, you know, have this strong female lead protagonist or told from the female point of view. Because I was going to say right. the only other ones that I can think of, Age of Innocence, but I feel like that's really more Daniel Day Lewis's right. character's movie, New York, New York. That's probably the one where there's the strongest argument. That's probably yes. Liza Minnelli's movie, but that's a a romance. It's definitely like a whatever two hand or whatever they call it. It's definitely De Niro and Minnelli. Whereas, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that Christopherson, who is theoretically the second lead in this movie, has is as intrinsic to this story. It's really her story. It's not oh, no. their story. I mean, he doesn't even show up until an hour into the movie. You know, it's right. a lot less about him than the posters would have you believe. Right. It's also but interesting mean, to see that like they don't get to Tucson until an hour into the movie. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And in the original cut, there was about an hour at home with, with, with her husband. And there was a lot more stuff involved. And that's one of the things that Scorsese wow. is a little upset about is he had to cut about 45 minutes out of that. Huh. And there's a lot. What's left is you just get the feeling that, this guy's kind of a monster and it doesn't even really feel like he's Tommy's real father. I almost, when you watch it, you almost feel like they're not biologically connected. I agree. Is I it, think is in the, his original. Is, is he supposed to be his real father? Cause that's news to me. He is. Okay. Yeah, he is. <laughs> but in the original cut, there's a, there's a lot more. He's not just this nonstop asshole. And in Scorsese's words, there's a couple of scenes in there where he's actually in the right. You know, there's a scene where, uh, Alice is uh, 
arguing with him because why won't she drive them to Monterey for the weekend? But he's like, I've been working all week driving the Coca-Cola truck. I'm really, really tired. So there's a lot of stuff that's, that's gone. Well, I think that, that it's interesting in that there's the one scene that remains that I was going to ask you about because I have trouble interpreting it. And now that you're telling me all this other stuff, which I didn't know, I, I think I'm leaning more towards this other reading of it, which is where she makes this big dinner and is planning yeah. this romantic evening. And then they're in bed together and he's totally ignoring her and she starts crying. And right. it isn't until she starts crying that he suddenly sort of snaps out of it. And I'm trying to figure out, are they saying that he is in a way turned on by her misery? Oh. And that's why he leans you, over? Or is he finally empathetic it. and sympathetic? No, uh, I'm saying, like, oh, because, he's such a, because he's such a creep throughout every other scene he's in, it's like, what? You know, it's hard to say, oh, now they're showing this other side of him. But I, I do lean that. I lean, I lean the way that, no, he really is yeah. suddenly sympathetic. <laughs> on. Wow, that's a reading that I, you know, after our last conversation about magic, I thought you might come up with a reading <laughs> on something in this movie that I was like, no, that's crazy. But then I thought there's nothing in this movie that anybody could read in a psycho way like that. No, you did it. That's that. So he's turned on. So Alice doesn't cruise here anymore. Is, is that what you think is going on? I mean, I'm, you know, again, as you point out, there's 45 minutes cut out. And I feel like the dynamics well, of their relationship are a little bit. It's almost like you, you get the vibe that maybe he's impotent. Because even in that scene, it's not like they then launch into having sex. He's sort of like curled up like John Lennon next to Yoko Ono in almost like a fetal position. Yeah. No, I don't think he, I I never read it as him being impotent. I mean, let's forget what's missing, but let's talk about what's there. And I I, I just think he's emotionally impotent and he feels really bad that he's making everybody in the house miserable. And, you know, I can relate to that. And. So I, I, I really, I really, really uh, respond to that scene. I think it's terrific. I think it's a terrific scene, too. I just was like, well, am I reading? The, I mean, I read it the way it should be read. But then I thought, am I reading this wrong? Because there's nothing else, uh, you know, there's nothing else to signal that he has any real. I'll give it to uh, you. You, you like to look at things from, from a different view. Yeah, well, you know, I got to we got to fill up an hour and a half somehow. Mm-hmm. Um but let's yeah, talk let's about do. that, and, and I, you know, we should go back to the beginning in a second. But let's, as long as we're here, let's cover this Billy Greenbush dude, yeah. who I think is terrific in this movie. Great. And it's kind of sad that really, I, 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 when I, I, when I clicked on his Wikipedia, I expected I'd see, oh, he's in a ton of movies that I know, and you know, he had this really long career, and, uh, eh, he does, he didn't really. And he did a lot of TV stuff, which is true for some other people in this movie too. But like, he's in the Incredible Hulk, the you know the um, Bill Bixby version. He was in five easy pieces. Yeah, it's not like he doesn't do anything else. Uh, and I, I I meant to go back and watch Electric Glide in Blue because I can't quite remember him in that movie. But I was reading stuff that they were saying, oh, he's got this great performance in that. What's so. that western he's in? Gunsmoke? Uh, no. no uh, it's, it's uh, Culpepper Cattle Company? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, this cast is a lot of great dudes in this movie. Well, you know what he's in? He's in The Hitcher. Oh, please. 
Not not another hitcher person. Stop it. It's a hitcher. Anyway, he's terrific. And he um yeah, he 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 reminds me of a bunch of other sort of seventies actors, but uh in a way he's even got some of that like Chris Isaac going for him. Not that he's a seventies actor, but Okay. All right. He looks more I'll tell you what, he looks more like Elvis than that fucking Austin Butler dude. Okay. All right. Sure. <laughs> But it, but let's go back to let's let's start this thing off right. Uh, okay. But but so anyway so so are you with me that you didn't register this as a Martin Scorsese movie the first time? Well, as you saw it? in my house, the auteur of this movie was not Martin Scorsese; it was Chris Christopherson. So my mom was a big Chris Christopherson fan. Cisco Pike, the '76 uh, Star Is Born, and this movie. They were watched a lot in my house. And, you know, this is one of my mom's favorites. And I watched it a lot with her. Yeah. So I don't even remember when I figured out it was Scorsese. But, but like, I see so much of Scorsese in this movie. And it's kind of thrilling. And I, 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 I don't know. I mean, for, for me, at first, it was a Chris Christopherson movie. What was the first Scorsese movie you saw and registered as a Scorsese movie? And like, oh shit, this is Taxi Driver. So it was Taxi Driver in in a very truncated form. Oh yeah, but you know it was it's Taxi Driver, and there was all that time trying spent trying to see Deer Hunter on television, which was difficult because I wasn't allowed because it was Mm. uncut. So I had to watch it with the sound down really really low. But you know, I mean. I think when I was in my teens and I realized that this was Scorsese, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And I'd go back and I'd see it and I'd go, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, this is, this is that guy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the driving force and so maybe the auteur, I mean, not really an auteur, but the, the, that this is an Ellen Burstyn thing and that, that this yes. was... This was Warner Brothers saying, we love you in Exorcist. We want to be in the Ellen Burstyn business. What do you want to do next? And she says, I've got this script I want to do and I want, but I want it to be. And I, and this is, I mean, these are great instincts. And I, and I, one of the mysteries to me is like, you know, why did Ellen Burstyn not really work again for another three years after this? Because it seems like with Exorcist and this, she's on a hot streak and it seems like, it was her idea to, to to get Scorsese to direct this thing, and it was a great idea. And I think her instincts about the relative sort of safeness or slickness of the screenplay and how she needed to counteract that with, like, you know, one of these 70s rough-and-tumble guys didn't who work for a whole of, Yeah. You know, why didn't... Um, I don't know. Why didn't people well, think, give her... I think to Palma, so... Larry yeah. Cohen is one of the producers on this and it's not that one, but it's the guy right. who wrote the script for <laughs> Carrie. Right. So he discovered the, the screenplay. And so I'm sure he, he gave it to De Palma and uh, De Palma suggested Coppola and then Coppola suggested Scorsese. I just love the idea of these guys th- always throwing Scorsese a bone. Right. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and she, she, you know, sees mean streets and she's like, yeah, I don't know if he can, direct women it's all movies all about men and she asked scorsese what he knows about 
women and he says nothing, but I'd like to learn. And so she loved that response so much. She was like, okay, you got the job. Right. And it's not just those guys throwing a bone to Scorsese, but they, but they, they, they're constantly throwing projects at each other that there's, you know, Lucas is handing Apocalypse Now over to Coppola. It's like, it's just like a nonstop circle jerk of like, I don't want to direct this. You should be directing this. And like, and it seemed to work (laughs) out for everyone ultimately. Pretty good. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I think, I think the idea of finding anyone who's gonna, who's not the typical, I mean, I, you know, I was thinking like, what, why does this, you know, this movie easily could have felt like a Neil Simon movie. Right. Or, or even like an, even like a slightly hipper, you know, female centric movie from the seventies, like unmarried woman or something. But it's so much more interesting than that. And it's all because of Scorsese, you know, and his, his, his style, his camera moves and all that stuff. And also right. his, his willingness to get visceral with the violence and to really not downplay right. and stuff. And in fact, play it up. Like, can you think of another, another, you know, the, the, sure this stuff is in the screenplay, but the fa- I mean, he kind of lingers over Donald's car accident. I mean, there's a lot of blood and gore for him. I, I can think of like a, this. I can see somebody going, why is this necessary? And it's kind of like, that's what makes it exciting is is those things shooting out that just seems like there's a lot of energy in this movie that that could be criticized or deemed unnecessary and that's what makes it fun for to me you know and that's what makes it interesting it's like he's he's approaching this like like a genre picture like uh, Cape Fear. Okay, so Cape Fear, that's another work for hire that, that he did, all right? Oh, right. He's yeah. a- approaching this as a genre picture in the same way he approached that as a genre picture. And he's trying to inject himself and his personality and his own obsessions, you know, to use his word, into this thing. And the genre here is, you know, what they used to call women's pictures, you know, the woman's picture. Um, right. So he's taking, you know, certain things but that, like a Douglas Sirk thing. And he's saying, let's go my way with it. Yeah. Well, Douglas Sirk, that's an interesting comparison too. But I, but I was sitting around thinking like, yeah, who else would have done, who else was doing this kind of thing? Who else was putting a woman at the center of a movie that's as sort of cinematically exciting and like not, you know, not Herb Ross and not playing, not a, not a, just a sort of cookie cutter, like, you know, uh, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, two shot thing, like, you know, classic Hollywood uh, shooting style. And then I was like, oh, wait. And I was looking at a newspaper and I saw like an ad for Cassavetti's movie. I was like, oh, yeah, right. Cassavetti's. Cassavetti's. So then I was yes. like, then I thought, okay, this film kind of splits the difference between a Neil Simon vehicle and a, and a Cassavetti's movie. And I think that's a yes. great place to be. <laughs> right. So good for Yeah. Morning. And, you know, back to the women thing, like, he's always got strong women characters in his movies mm-hmm. and they're always great performances and they always get nominated for Oscars. You know, it's not like women are high and dry in his movies. I mean, you know, not at all. Say you could say some things about mean streets if you want, but women by and large are not left high and dry in his movies. They've got something to do. And, 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 um, you know, but this, yeah, this might be the only one where this in New York, New York, where, it's a woman's picture. 
right? Right. I mean, I think that, I think that, I think that people don't think of Scorsese, and he probably doesn't really think of himself when it comes to, uh, well, comedies, musicals, and you know, and and women's women's pictures. I guess here's one that's basically all three. And every time he does one of those movies, they're pretty fucking great. And so again, my question, at, you know, looking back on his whole career, is why didn't you know? Too bad he didn't do more of these. And maybe I hope he does do more. Who's gonna let him? You know, like every time <laughs> he's got a movie that isn't about gangsters, people bitch. And then you know, when he does have a movie about the gangsters, oh, it's the same fucking movie. He can't win. The guy cannot win. Except he does. He won. You know. Yeah. So right off the bat, this film is crazy in that it it starts off yeah. as this, you know, Academy ratio, four by three Hollywood 40s credit sequence. And then that goes into I see people calling it Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. To me, it always struck me as completely Wizard of Oz. I, I didn't get a Gone with the Wind feeling, but OK, that's fine. Yeah. You watch the beginning of this and you can kind of understand why he reacted so strongly to Pearl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much. This, this, right, this opening would feel right at home at, in, in yeah, Pearl. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's really good. It's beautiful. And, and it, it, once again, it's a thing that, like, well, this doesn't need to be here. Of course it doesn't need to be here. He just wanted to do it. And I don't know for sure. Maybe you do. It feels like he does something where every time I see filmmakers do this, I think, yes, what a great idea. Why doesn't everyone do it this way? Which is, I think that he's got Ellen Burstyn doing the voiceover for the little girl. So it's her voice, and she's kind of doing a little girl voice. Maybe. I mean, And I also think Ellen Burstyn is doing the voice of her mother in that scene. I almost think that is Ellen Burstyn as the yeah. mother. I think that you know? could be. Wow, what movie is that from? Is that from? That's not from Shane. That's from East of Eden. Mm. So when the mother calls out to her, that's from East of Eden. Mm. But I, I, I was looking at a picture, and it it looks like it might be her. Like I, I can't tell, and I can't find anything that says it's her or not. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm thinking of at the end of um, A League of Their Own, when uh, you get to see uh, all those women in the movie um, as as older, as, you know, many years later, after the fact, they're like walking through a museum where they're seeing pictures of themselves in, the, in their baseball outfits. And they're not played by the women that we've seen all along. Like Lord but it's Kenny their voices. And, but it's their voices, and I think that sells them as those characters really, really well. And I wish that people would do that all the time. I think if you carry over an actor's voice, you'll believe whatever is being put in front of you visually. Sure. That's my If opinion. it works. Yeah. yeah. But so anyway, so then that gets, that scene gets sort of, Interrupted, you sort of hear like this jet engine taking off and boom, you're in. Or is that part of the Mata Hoople song? That jet sound? Well, I don't, the, I honestly don't know that. I don't know. Hmm. I don't think it is. I don't it, either. It could be. 
but it's great. And, and, you know, the screen expands to 185 and suddenly we're, you know, and it's a great way of pulling us into the present. Right. But it, it, it the screen like disappears. Yeah. It goes back. It recedes before it, it pops up to 185, which is different than we usually see. Right. We're taking off from that past in a jet plane and then we arrive Right. And then it's interesting that you hear that jet plane and then the next shot is in the air. It's like a... Right, right. Yeah, one of two great, well, three great crane shots at the beginning of that movie. I love mm-hmm. that shot of the of the house or later on. Is it the house that... that it, whatever it is, it's great. With the mountains and everything. Yeah, well, two things about that second opening sequence where we find Alice as an adult living, you know, in... Um, where is she at that point? Phoenix? It's uh No, Socorro. So- She's in New Mexico. Yeah, Socorro, right, right. Socorro, right. Socorro sucks, as she right. says. <laughs> but it reminded me a lot of a movie I saw again for the first time earlier this year or last year, uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Mask, which also starts uh outside of a house and there's music and it's diegetic music. It's music that's actually in the scene. Um, but at first, you're not sure that that's the case. Right. Um, and in Mask, it's, well, depending on what version you see, it's either Bob Seger or it's Bruce Springsteen that you're hearing. And then you, again, you sort of like, you're seeing, um, what's his Bob name? Bob Seger, please. <laughs> please. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're seeing uh, Rusty, or whatever his name is in Mask. Uh, Eric, uh, is that an actor's name? Fuck. Eric Estrada. Anyway. Yeah, Eric Estrada through the window, and you you know it it makes sense in mass because they don't want you to actually see what this guy looks like for a while. Right, uh, Rocky, not Rusty. It's right. Rocky. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, Eric but Stoltz. the same. But it, but it's Eric Stoltz. Thanks. Uh, but it's a very similar shot, and and it also introduces this thing that goes on throughout this movie where Scorsese plays a lot with music that. Maybe seems like it's non-diegetic, and then it turns out it is actually in the scene, and you eventually find out that that Tommy Alfred Lutter, the mm. kid, is um, the third on the floor. Alfred Lutter the third is uh, um, on the floor blasting with Martha the speaker. I I used to do speakers. that too. Set the speakers right up there. Texas headphones. Yeah. And it's a great, again, you're talking about that there were 45 minutes cut, but I think that first sequence tells you so much about those three characters. You get to see Alice sewing and, and sort of rocking along with, uh, with Mott the Hoople. She, it doesn't seem to be bothering her at all. Until the see- saxophone solo starts. Then she's kind of like, <laughs> this is too much. And she crosses her eyes. So she, she's kind of caught between Tommy and, and her husband. Like, she understands both points of view yeah but i also interpreted that as like her being wary of her husband's well she knows her husband must be in the bedroom fuming about to explode right right and i love that you never you don't get to see him and you only see his legs but it tells you so much about him just that he's laying in bed he's got a magazine open i gotta think that's the opening scene anyway you know it's not like yeah it's not like there's a half an hour preceding that. That's that's how we see them. Right. Right. 
Um, so it's so it's but it's it's great in that it's this 70s, you know, sort of gritty comedy drama. But right off the bat, there's this crazy Technicolor prologue. And then there's these camera moves that, you know, you look at it now and you're like, fuck, this is what the Coen brothers were doing 20 years later in Raising Arizona. Uh, but look at look at Scorsese just, you know, so much earlier doing doing all this wild stuff. And I guess, you know, I guess it's for him, it's this French new wave influence. But well, I mean, he's working with the same team that he had on Mean Streets and they're mm-hmm. not really changing the way they work, which is what what I love about it. And what's so exciting to me about the movie is, well, uh, yeah. And I'm glad the cinematography up- and the editing are the same. Right. And but but this cinematographer, Kent Wakeford, it's interesting mm-hmm. his career to me because he does these two Scorsese movies and you think like, okay, here's a guy who, you know it's gotta right. be an in demand cinematographer. Like you he's know, right must there be on the cusp stuff. of like, you know, one of the <laughs> most dynamic shooting styles of the seventies. And then what does he do? Nothing. He doesn't have a single film credit between seventy. He starts making T V. Yeah, and then the Princess Academy in 87. In the meantime, you're right. He's doing tons of fucking TV stuff. And it's like, what happened? I mean, I guess it was the money or something. I don't know. Have you ever heard about a falling out that he had with Scorsese? Like, why didn't Scorsese keep going with him? Why didn't he shoot Taxi Driver? I, I, That's when he started work with Michael Ballhouse, right? On Taxi Driver? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the other thing about it is when uh, he's did taxi driver that's when the the sort of handheld tracking shots that are in this and mean streets that's all gone you don't see any handheld stuff in taxi driver and there's not a lot in new york new york and i can't think of many except the tommy getting beat up scene in in raging bull where that's the only handheld bit i can think of in that movie well there's some in the ring but but this was this style that they had worked up together and what's interesting about this movie is the handheld shots don't start until after the husband dies so before then everything's just you know like there'd be cir- circling scenes but everything's like on a dolly and it's you know but the handheld s- stuff starts afterwards and it starts to like get more jittery and more uh mean streets-esque yeah, about we're in her head, and right. the closer she she's coming to, do. to a nervous breakdown, right. the closer right. the camera's coming to a nervous breakdown. Yeah, I, I more dangerous. My, my favorite shot in the movie, the movie, the shot that I'm like, wow, what a, what an interesting and crazy idea they had here was. I think it's the first shot of Flo in the diner, and she's serving all those tables, and the camera's like up and over her shoulder, but like, you know dollying with her as she like goes from table to table and it's such a it's such a fun energetic angle but it's like who would even think that this is what you know what to do and it's but it's great it's great yeah it's amazing to me how how uh was that movie medium cool it's amazing to me how how steady people who were doing handheld work were back at the time when you see that tracking shot with uh Forster and and he's running down the street medium cool and just it, it's it's not a steady cam I mean it's him like just holding that thing really steady it's amazing yeah 
Yeah, I was watching Chinatown the other day too, and realizing there's a there's a bunch of handheld stuff, but it's also right. You know, it's smooth, it, but it also sometimes jitters a little bit, which happens a lot in this movie, especially during those bar scenes. And it's really, really electric. And it, it, and you know, who shoots a bar better than Martin Scorsese in the early seventies? Right, right. One of the first things that struck me when I was like watching the movie and thinking, well, what are, what, you know, never mind what the, what the differences are in this movie and Taxi Driver. What are the things that, you know, because this is such a not a New York movie. And yet the people that are inhabiting that diner, um, you know, they don't really feel that different than the cab drivers who are hanging out at the all night coffee shop and Taxi Driver. Right. It's all the same people that come there every day, you know. Yeah. 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 You know, and there's a there's a similar sort of, you know, scary quality to to everyone. Yeah. Um, All those men. Um, So, okay, Uh, Alice, blah, blah, blah. She uh, um, she's living this domestic bliss. Not really. Um, but then suddenly, um, just after she is joking with her friend about being, would be perfectly fine if she never saw her husband again, gets a phone call and Donald has died. And then we get to see her friend who's from a who's a Cassavetes alum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Cassavetes. Yes. Yes. Let's speak of him. Um, so... Uh, they decide to have a garage sale, <laughs> pack up what's left of their meager belongings. That old woman, she's great. shawl is great. Yeah. I mean, now is she crying? Is Ellen Burstyn crying because she goes, that's going to be me someday? Or is she crying because she's sad to be leaving? Or is it both? I think it's a sad to be leaving I don't get the sense that she looks at that woman and thinks that's going to be me someday. Okay. I I think it's more like, I can't believe, (laughs) I can't believe this woman is, 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 yeah. (laughs) And and yet I'm going to give it to her because. Please enjoy it. Oh, you know, I will. You can bet on that. (laughs) The best haggler on the planet gets it for nothing. Yeah, and seeing Scorsese's mother in various films, but certainly the documentary he made about his parents, Italian-American, like, again, there's not that much difference between that old woman and, and Scorsese's mom. Well, well, I mean, apparently, like, his real end to this movie was the relationship between Tommy and Ellen Burstyn reminded him of his relationship. And that's one of the reasons I love this movie as well, is because it reminds me of my relationship with my mom. Just that constant back and forth. Yeah. So let's talk about Tommy. Let's talk about Alfred Lutter, who is so great in this movie and right up there with everyone else in Bad News Bears. And then that's it for him, too. And it's like, wow, this guy would have been so great. He should have kept going. But then I'm like, nah, he probably wouldn't have been. Not everyone's Jodie Foster. Yeah. Jodie Foster is like one out of 99 child actors who are able to then keep going and keep giving good performances. Well, he's um, only in four movies in the 70s. and uh, Two of them are Bad News Bears movies. <laughs> right. So three of them are great. Uh, w- the one that we're not talking about is Love and Death. 
Oh, so yeah. So he does love and death sure. after this, which is interesting because during the, the Wanda Faye scene where he's fanning himself with, yeah. the, uh, with the fan, yes. he looks like a silly Woody Allen. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That's a great scene. Um, and a great and a great little thing that he's doing. Yeah, he's he's great. He's great. And there's something about their relationship that again, probably on paper and with a different director and a different cast would be all the way over on the side of the line of cutesy. And but with the combination of everyone here like is not at all i mean it's cute but it's not you never feel like it's overwritten or that uh, that you don't you, you never not believe this relationship yeah he's a brat and 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 everything and apparently there was more improvisation going on in this movie than there was in mean streets and so a lot yeah. of that stuff is between them is just stuff that they came up with in rehearsals and you know like the the, the uh the joke that he keeps getting wrong about shoot the dog. Uh, that was something that he tried to tell that joke to Scorsese. And he was like, Oh, we're putting that in the movie. <laughs> All right. Here's what Scorsese says about auditioning Alfred letter. He says, I met the kid in my hotel room and he was kind of quiet and shy. Uh, Scorsese, Scorsese says, but when he paired him with Burson and suggested that she deviate from the script, he held his own. And Scorsese says, usually when we're improvising with the kids, they would either freeze and look down or go right back to the script with this kid. You couldn't shut him up. <laughs> Don't recognize him with his mouth closed. Since you brought it up, I was trying to follow along this last time I watched it. Can, do you understand the joke? Can you tell that joke? He's telling the joke wrong. So uh, it, it, it's about this guy. And I remember this joke. This was kind of a famous joke. My dad would tell it to me. Uh, uh, so there was this guy that would, would, you'd hire to get uh, gorillas out of the trees. I think the way my dad told it to me, it was bears out of the trees. And then he had these hounds that, you know, they'd shake the bear out of the tree. The bear would fall. And then the hounds would grab the bear or the gorilla in this case by the nuts and you know they get the animal so in this instance the, the the hunter is climbing up the tree and the bear or in this case the gorilla knocks him out of the tree and he goes and as he's falling to the ground he's yelling shoot the dog shoot the dog because the the dogs are gonna get ah he's about to the off. dog's about to go for the nuts because anything that falls out of the tree the dog assumes is right quarry. so that's the joke but tommy st still thinks it's another gorilla and oh. falling out and he's shoot the dog so that's he's screwing up this joke that isn't really that great but it, it was big back then it was a big joke in the 70s cool very good like it like it a lot so then they get to um, Phoenix and um, they camp out in a hotel room and Alice is going to try to find a job as a singer in a nightclub or a bar. <laughs> um, and But to Tommy is already like, fuck this. And she gets mad and has him write a list of all of his grievances. Right. But then she goes out uh, looking for, for work and there's a couple of great scenes in various bars. The first bar she 
gets comes into she asks for the you know it's like it's like two guys names the, the name of the bar like right she asks the bartender if either one of them are there and he's like there's <laughs> that's just the name of the bar there's nobody there right, right. i just don't believe what you said <laughs> they're not here all right and it's funny because then she turns it around on him from from uh, taxi driver yeah but I like that, like, you know, she turns it around and makes the same joke to him or she makes a joke out of it. Like she says, what? And he says, he repeats himself and she says, oh no, I, I just couldn't believe what you were saying. Right. She charms him. Right. Yeah. And it looks like it's working well until he says, you don't look like a singer. And then she's like, all right, I'm out of here. Right. But I also love the way that like the movie sort of shows you every step of the way where Tom, how Tommy got his personality. And how much of it comes from her, right? Um, you know, he, from, from the from the from his constant swearing to the, just his constant, his quick wittedness and his sarcasm, um, sarcasm and 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 fun that he has with people in conversations. Like you see her do it all the time, and you know, you it's not something that's like forced down our throat. Like here's why this is the mother, this is the mother and this is the son, but it's just like, it's just something that registers in almost every scene. Like you see why they are. I I can't think of another relationship between a mother and son in a movie that I I like more than this. This is my favorite mother son relationship in any movie better than psycho. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Better than the Fablemans. Oh yeah, definitely. She she then goes to a second bar, and she bumps into a guy whose name is um, Chicken. Chicken, yeah, Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then she finally bumps I, into. I, I think these yeah. scenes are where, where, like, if you didn't know it was Scorsese, this is the part where you go, "Oh, this is Scorsese," you know? Yeah. yeah. And then she meets Mr. Jacobs, who's played by Scorsese regular Murray. Mostyn? Is that his name? Mostyn? Mostyn? Yeah. Yeah, who was in Mean Streets, right? He's in... This is one of my favorite scenes in After Hours. He's the token Yeah, he plays the subway subway token. Yeah, but he's also... I'm pretty sure he's in... uh, I think he's in Mean Streets and or Taxi Driver. No, I'm sure he is. Uh, I can't... In Taxi Driver, does he work in in the taxi shop? In the taxi cab shop or something? Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's the dispatcher. Who is he in Mean Streets? I, I'm sure he is, but I can't, I can't think of who it would be. But what's fun about it is that, uh, yeah, he's in Taxi Driver. Yeah, he's, at the, he's one of those guys at the, in, the, in the shootout at the end of Taxi Driver. Oh, okay. He's in New York, New York, and he's in Mean Streets. He plays Oscar in Mean Streets. Okay. He's also in The Front with Woody oh, Allen. God. He's also in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, what does he work at the dry cleaner? Is he he's the haberdash. He's the haberdashery salesman. Okay. So maybe he sells John Travolta a hat. So not to bring up a sore subject, but it's but to me, Scorsese brings all these New York guys with him to Phoenix, and they uh-huh. still feel like they belong there. Uh, in Phoenix in, or New York? In Phoenix. Like I, I, I never watch any of these guys in this movie and think these guys don't feel like they're Western scumbags. They feel like they're New York City scumbags that Scorsese just brought over with them. 
<laughs> I never get that feeling. As opposed to like Christine, where it's in oh, California, why, but, why, there's, why gotta... but there's like two or three guys who were doing like these Dems, those like Bowery Boys accents. And I'm like, what are these fucking guys doing here? Well, I, I'm, come on. I mean, Harry Northup always seems like a fucking hillbilly in every movie he's in, <laughs> even if it's over the edge. Okay. Yeah. But so, Prosky yeah. doesn't always have that same New York thing going that he does in Christine. I mean, I guess people move from time, sure. you know, from the East Coast sure to the does. West. Yeah, sure he does. But we're gonna. But I'm glad we're we started talking about this because we're about to meet Harvey Keitel in this movie. All right, um, yeah, great, great. The, does anybody really buy Harvey Keitel's accent? See, you're you're forcing me to turn against this movie that I love okay. by attacking another movie that I love. I was gonna say I do I do believe his accent. Okay. In this movie. And I also recently tried to sit through for the first time since I saw it in the theater uh, from Dust Till Dawn. I didn't get very far. But he's doing a, <laughs> he's doing a similar thing in From Dust Till Dawn. And it made me wonder, and, and I, I, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're going to, maybe your answer is going to be that, no, you don't think those are credible accents. But it makes me wonder about Keitel and two other movies that are famous or infamous for his voice or his not voice. In Saturn 3, for whatever reason, they decided they needed to dub his voice. Wow. Uh, with Alan Burstyn's voice? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't remember with some British actor, I think. And so, have you ever watched that? I uh, I've tried, you know. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. I don't know if I've ever made it through. But I then the preview, but yeah, I know. Right. But then in Passion of the Christ, he's got this total New York Brooklyn. And it was like, you know, I remember critics like tearing into that. Have you ever read what the, what was that decision about? Was that I think that a- decision was a conscious decision to sort of bridge the gap and the distance and, and not make it like, you know, the robe or, or make it, you know, one of these Cecil B. DeMille type of things. Um, let them talk the way they talk, make it very immediate, and, and the way Schrader wrote it. And, you know, so it's got all these New York actor, theater guys in it, and and I'm totally down with it. You know, I mean, the last time I saw it was, I think, last year at Music Box, and it totally worked for me. I, I, I don't really, honestly, I never care about anything like this. This kind of stuff rarely gets under my skin. I, it, I never even think of it. I, I never go, oh, that's not a real accent, you know. His, Kaitel's accent in this movie is bizarre, but I think the character he's playing is really fucking bizarre. And, you know, I mean, she should have seen something was wrong with this guy a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she... But, but I believe that she wouldn't. You know, you know I'm just right. saying we can see it. But I also am impressed and totally believe her reaction when he flips out and gets really violent. Yeah. And the way she tries to talk him down. Uh, right. Like, it does not work. <laughs> no. It doesn't, doesn't work, work at all. all. Yeah. But you know, so, I, I, yeah. Before we go too far, I, I wanted the, the, that audition scene is terrific. The way it's edited and, you know, Marsha Lucas worked on this movie and just the way it's shot and edited. I mean, it's just, it's great. And for a second there, I'm like, oh, she's got the job, 
you know, when they cut to her singing a different song and, and no, it's still part of the audition. I mean, it's really, really a great scene. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking I had this in my notes, the same exact thing that there's this wonderful sort of secret jump cut where she starts off by singing Where or When, which is a song that I love and I love how heavily featured it is in this movie. It really becomes, even though it's not the song that we hear over the opening credits, it Mm -hmm. really does become the theme song of this movie because we get to see her play it. It's the first song we see her play at home practicing on the piano and then it's the first song she launches into this audition and then it's what we hear over the end credits as well but um it's but the this, long long time of this movie yes yes yeah. and uh the but there's this cut so she starts singing where or when and then there's this cut it's not a jump cut in the sense that it's the same frame Uh, but the people have obviously moved on. It's like it cuts to a close-up of her, and she's singing, and and at first you think it's the same song, and then you realize, oh, no, it's not the same song. It's a different song, and this is later on, and then I think we even get cut to a third song. That stuff is great. You're absolutely right, and Marsha Lucas, I think, does a great job in editing, and that's my favorite cut in the whole movie is that cut from the sort of wide shot of her singing Where or When to the close-up of her sort of lifting her head from the keyboard and she's singing another song and it's right. It's really good. I love that. And the other thing I love about this scene is how, how taciturn or is that the word that these guys are? They don't say anything like she's, they're letting her talk and talk. They're not giving her any answers (laughs) that that Mr. Jacobs is just sort of sitting there and he's, Uh. he's not telling her he has the job (laughs) or doesn't have the job. He's just like, and 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 really, a lot of the men in this movie, their first reaction to her is like they're they're like stunned into silence. They have nothing to say. Right, right, right. She has a lot of confidence until she meets Kaitel, and and he goes, and she realizes it's all an illusion. Like she's not in control at all. The men are still in control, and in in an instant, they can change, and she's in real danger. One more thing about songs. That is I Will Always Love You playing in that scene that they first meet, right? Yes. That's the Dolly, Dolly Parton. I will, yeah. Yes. Yep. It's not in the final credits of the movie. It, it's so weird. Huh. Well, like I said to you yesterday, I was wondering if the reason this thing hasn't right. had a Blu-ray release is like music rights issues. And I, you know, but I don't but know. Why, you know, I watched it on Amazon. So, I mean... And it's there's a difference the between but there's a difference between streaming platforms and using music and then home home physical media. They're okay. all different well, parts of a contract. But uh, you should write you should write I'm, that down. Because... I'm writing that down right now. All right, so Kaitel turns shocking and it's wife Lane Bradbury, who looks a, does she look a little like Adrian Shelley to you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little less freakish than Adrian. Yeah, a little right? less freakish, yes. <laughs> but yeah, and she's uh, she's good. She's also somebody who promptly went and did nothing but television after this yeah. movie. Yeah. So uh, Harvey Keitel, uh, his wife comes in. Great scene in the kitchen between the two women. And then Keitel comes. All hell breaks loose. Another great scene, and so visceral. And again, another one of the many things that sets this movie apart from, you know, all kinds of other movies. Right. Uh, yeah. That, that that would tell the same kind of story. 
Yeah, and, and a lazy reading of it would be like, this is when it comes alive because this is what Scorsese knows, you know. Well, that's a terrible reading because I think the whole movie I, has that. I, I think that's it. a reading that a lot of people have of his entire career. You know, and, and, uh, not, not to bring this onto something else, but there's a certain overrated director uh, that I was reading a slew of his reviews yesterday. And somebody was like saying, you know, he's got a sense of humor, unlike Spielberg. And it's just kind of like, what are you talking about? Is there anything funnier than some of those scenes in Jaws? Is there anything funnier than the scenes in this movie? You, you talk about comic timing comic timing in this movie the, the people who look at scorsese and only see people getting their asses kicked or their heads blown off i don't know what to say to them but now you've got me interested in who the overrated director is well, we can talk about it later <laughs> okay uh, Michael Bay. It's it's a director who uh, used to be a comedian. So supposedly, oh, has, for God's sake, he has Never a much mind. better yes. sense of t comic timing than his forebears. So, you know, he may take a thing or two from Spielberg, but at least he knows how to do comedy. That was well, that he was. He may the know review. how to do comedy, but he doesn't know how to do horror. That was fiction. the review. Yeah. And I was like, well, I, he, do you know how to watch a movie that's not from this decade? <laughs> Uh, Moving on. Yeah. So she can't stay there. She's got to go because the scorpion's going to mess with her. Right. So they quickly pack, leave Phoenix. They get on the road. We get to hear some T-Rex. And this is where Tommy tells his gorilla joke. Right. More comedy uh, gold. Comedy gold. And then pretty quickly then, Alice... Uh, comes back to their new hotel flophouse room to tell Tommy that she's gotten a job at this Melon Rubies. I love that we don't see her get the job. I love it. How dejected she is. She's like, you can relax, kid. I got a job. And we learn it's a waitress. And then she says she, they told her where she can go buy her waitress uniform, which is another yeah. great. There's so there's let's talk for a second about this screenwriter. Um, Who's interesting to me? Um, yeah. Because I think I think when people Robert read about Gretchel. this movie, they talk shit about him a lot, and I get it. I get the idea that they think like the screenplay, you know, that the screenplay by itself, it really needed this injection of Scorsese and and the performances to turn it into something that it that it isn't, and and that could easily be true. But it's he uh, he then went on right. to do Bound for Glory, which is a movie I've never seen, but almost watched a couple of weeks ago uh like the story of excuse me woody guthrie woody guthrie um, yeah and he's then, very famous for well he worked on the tv show for alice right and then he right then he you know being the creator of these characters he is the he then went on to and here's another here's a, here's a non-scorsese thing for us to talk about for a minute the 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 gritty 70s movies that got turned into long-running TV sitcoms that ultimately, I think, became much more well-known and popular than the original movies. But it's fascinating and, 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 and were legitimately successful shows in their own terms. You know, and, and the three big ones that I was, could remember today are MASH. Right. Uh, Alice, this one, and then, um, and what's happening? Uh, uh, 
I, cool. What's happening is not coolly high. I, I, I think you're, it breaks down when you try to do that. But I'm with you on Mash and Alice. Well, the thing about isn't didn't we talk about this? That but isn't the create isn't the guy who wrote Cooley High the guy who created What's Happening? I think so, but it's it's it it's not it's it's different. You know what I it's, mean? It, it's more different that it's more different from the original film than I guess Mash and Alice are from their original films. I mean, if it was set in a high school, I think you'd have something, but it's really not. It's set in, it's set in their home and they live in the, the suburbs. They don't live like, you know, in an apartment in the city. It's, you could say that good times has just as much of a, a, a claim to being the television show for Cooley High, I guess. Okay, Mash and Alice. Is there another one that you can think of? Uh, was the White Shadow? What was the White Shadow? Oh, oh Paper Chase. Paper Chase Paper was, Chase, yeah. was one, yeah. And that was a great one, too. Yeah. But here's the one thing I remember about the first time that I saw this movie is, that is why I think I must have seen Alice first, because I feel like I remember thinking, like, well, that's not Bolly Holiday and... The the character that I think is the most different is probably Vera, right? Like, yes, she's a totally different kind of nuts in this movie. Weird in this yeah. movie. Weird. Quote I can't. Somebody. I can't. I love this scene where she's like, "I can't open this syrup." <laughs> so good. Uh, and then me getting to meet her father. Uh, what's his name? Daddy something. Daddy. Daddy. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like Daddy Duke. It's like Daddy, Daddy Duke. Daddy Duke. <laughs> But you got Vic Tabak. Yes. And you, you know, you couldn't have it without Vic Tabak. There was a band here in Chicago called Vic Tabak and the Violent Payback. Wow. Good name. Yeah. That's nice. This guy always had the best band names, and that was a really good one. Yeah, this movie started making me think about these TV superstars from the 70s. Like, it's amazing how famous they were. And, and you know, an old character actor like Vic Tabak. For us, like ten-year-olds, was like an idol. Like, oh fuck, yeah. Vic Tabak. There's nobody more famous in the world right now than Vic Tabak. Like, yeah, his or like, is so classic. Or Schneider in One Day at a Time. Yeah, yeah. Pat Harrington is that that guy's name? Yeah, that sounds about right. But Robert Gretchel, like, you think people just write him off because of Mommy Dearest? I mean, I don't know why they would, but I mean, listen, I don't think that. <laughs> I think that. I think that out of all these movies that got made from his screenplays, which are also Sweet Dreams, which is the, um, uh, what's her name, bio, the Patsy Cline bio. Oh, that's Jessica right, yeah. Lang. And Stella, which is uh, an adaptation of that Stella Dallas. Stella Dallas. Movies. Well, he wrote This Boy's Life, which I'm a huge fan of. And, are you? And I, I, I love it. And there's a lot of, you know, about a son and her. The mother and get involved with this guy who's not a good guy. Yeah, it's a weird career because um, other than Alice doesn't live here anymore, everything else is based on somebody else's. There is no other like sort of original material from him. Everything else is an adapted from something else. From somebody's memoirs. Mostly from somebody's memoirs, although he also wrote the American remake of La Femme Nikita, which is Point of No Return, starring Bridget Fonda. Pointless of No Return. 
<laughs> and he also wrote uh, one of those John Grisham screenplays, uh, The Client, directed by Joel uh, Schumacher. Uh, not good. No. Although maybe not the worst of those Grisham Of movies. Joel Schumacher's movies? Oh, well, of Joel Schumacher movies. Oh. Certainly not the worst of Joel Schumacher's movies. And I'm somebody who always loved Lost Boys, so I'm not a total... Schumacher. You love Lost Boys. Okay. Well, I, lo- I, I loved it at the that. time, and I've sort of left it there. I haven't, I haven't revisited Lost Boys. It just, it spoke okay. to me. Sure. Maybe just, maybe just the shot of like Kiefer Sutherland in the light. I like Flatliners. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll do, I'll do a Scott Lucas here. All right. Lost Boys wasn't ridiculous enough for you. Try Flatliners. Yeah. Lost Boys seems like more energetic. I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot of energy in Flatliners. Uh, at, at least by the, the lighting designers. I don't know what they were on, but it's energetic. That's some energetic lighting. Okay, so, so where are we? Where was so we're halfway, th- we're halfway through the movie, and we're just now arriving in uh, Tucson, and at Mel's, and so we get introduced to Diane Ladd as Flo, Vic Tabak as Mel. Um, so is this the most successful part of the movie, since this is basically kind of what gets spin off into television? This whole diner stuff, is that what I'm supposed to be taking away from this movie? I don't know about that. I think it, I think, you know, it's the situation that lends itself best to becoming a sitcom. It's okay. like the here's the thing we can build. Here's the set. Yeah. Tons of episodes. Right. Here's the here's our set. Here's our cast of characters that interact with each other and we can right. expand upon and everybody well, it's smart lo- for him to smart for him to see that. Yeah. And everybody yeah. loves like, you know, all of Flo's one liners. Um, like a jack jack job and a paper sack. Um you know, and that's the other thing. I mean, was there anything more famous? There certainly wasn't among my friend group for a, probably a good year than Kiss My Grits. I mean, that was every but fucking Kiss My Grits is year. not in this movie. No. That's no. what that's what freaks me out, is Kiss My Grits did not start here. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm impressed by this Robert, what whatever his name is, is that... Gretchel. Robert Gretchel, that they did, the, the, you know, and I think MASH is true also. Like, they totally had a watered down whatever was in the original, but they still managed to create their own thing that worked, worked like gangbusters, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. So it's sort of like Scorsese and Burston needed to come in here and and punch up your script, but he's like, Oh, did they? I'll take it over here and it's going to be more successful than anything. And it's going to, it's going to eclipse this movie. Right, yeah. and you can imagine the studio executives saying, okay, so Flo, she's got to be a font of like these great sayings, but we can't use any of the ones you're using in the movie because they're obscene, uh, you know, or, or they, just, they cross the line. And so I don't know that it's an easy task. I mean, not that it's a hard task to come up with a bunch of one-liners that you can say on TV, but to come up with ones that take on a life of their own and become as iconic as Kiss My Grits does, that's, you know, that's impressive to me. It is. And it's also a, a, a TV show that would appeal to, uh, you know, streetwise, East Coasters, as well as people from the South. 
which it, that's a that's a perfect combination right there. Right, I, and I, I I like when she says you can kiss me where the sun don't shine. And he goes, I'll kiss you anywhere you want. Where the hell's the butter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to your point about the show appealing to like East Coasters and stuff, I think it was a smart a smart casting of Linda Lavin who plays much more like an East Coaster. Yeah, you know, a fish out of water than right, than Ellen right, Burstyn right. does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that, for a show that runs for 10 years. And, and you know, while Scorsese and Burston were having some pretty tough times, this guy's still riding high with this TV show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, moving away from the diner and the sitcomness of it, we get to meet uh, Tommy on his way out of maybe his first guitar lesson, has made friends with... Audrey slash Doris, played by Jodie Foster, who is just so great. She's amazing. So long, suckers. I mean, not a week goes by that I don't say that. There's so many lines in this movie. There's not a week goes by. Think real hard. It'll come to you, lady. Is today Ripple Day? Oh, just like Fred Sanford used to drink. Yeah. Weird. Think hard, lady. It'll come to you. That's a, that. Maybe that's my favorite line in the movie. <laughs> it's really. I, I do love when Tommy comes back from the ranch and says, "And hold on, he makes his own ice cream," <laughs> <laughs> and presents it to her as, "This is it." Yeah. So we get Jodie Foster and we get Chris Christopherson about this point in the movie too, who is his own kind of special effect, and 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 Scorsese. Really loves this guy. And, you know, he'd become a really important part of Taxi Driver as well. I mean, do you, do you know, was he a fan beforehand or anything like that? Had you heard anything like that? No. Mm-mm. You? I don't know. I don't know why he was chosen. I can only look through the prism of my mom and go, oh, well, he was chosen to appeal to my mom, which also, there, there's that, bit earlier where they're talking about Red, Robert Redford, who was another big one for my mom. Uh, so maybe it's just the beard and the blue eyes, which really comes through in the movie. And, well, and what's amazing fetishize that beard in that great scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But what's amazing to me about Christopherson, I still, I still think of him first and foremost as a musician songwriter. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a totally legit argument to be made that he that at the end of the day he's probably more well known for his acting. And when you look at when you look at his filmography, I mean this guy this guy has been in like 50 movies. I can't think of another country or rock star who has had one tenth of the film career. Well, first of all, he looks great. You know, he, uh, without a beard, he looks a little weird. But with a beard, he looks fucking amazing, right? Uh, and he, who's cooler, right? And he wrote Bobby McGee. So any... Well, Chris Christopherson's auditioning for this movie. Oh, no, he, he's in. Bring him in. We don't care. I want to hang out with Chris Christopherson for three or four months. Yeah. Sure. Why not? And the people he's working with are cool. They're really cool, by and large. He's working with, what, Peckinpah and... Scorsese and who did Cisco Pike? 
He's hanging out with Gene Hackman. Barbara Streisand wants a piece of him. But when Chris Christopherson first shows up, the thing he keeps telling her is, you know, big smile, big smile, which is a little annoying, especially now. Yeah. But later he, he comes off a bit more liberated. Like when she's telling him, oh, he, she got married, gave up all of her dreams. He seems a little surprised. So he's not an easy guy to pin down in this movie. No. Goes back and, and I forth. think. Yeah. Yeah. I think the character and more importantly, the performance are, are walking this tightrope that I don't think is easy to pull off because he's got to be ultimately like completely lovable and charming, which is okay. Great. But there's also has to be this tension, uh, you know, and, 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 and Keitel and his performance helps sell, they help you be worried for the rest of the movie about the sort of physical safety mm. and you understand, you know, of, of the two, of, of Alice and Tommy. And you certainly understand her wariness about getting involved with anyone again after that. And so even if it's right. Chris Christopherson. But having said all that, Christopherson, I think, does a really great job of being mildly threatening. And, you know, you're the scene, the birthday party scene where he loses it because Tommy's being such a fucking asshole, but also right. just being a kid. Um, I think that, that that scene also in its own is walking a really high wire, uh, you know, in as far as tone and you've got to still, you, you have to still leave room for, for Christopherson to be sympathetic and to be able to come around at the end and, be a part of their lives but i think they do a good job of not severely underplaying the awkwardness of that physical encounter that they have yeah i mean i, I doesn't tommy hit him tommy, tommy hits him you know tommy yeah, is and, completely and, out of line right and christopherson i think like shoves him or something but he doesn't he he doesn't do what you think. He doesn't hit him or he isn't physical with him in the way that you keep thinking is about to happen. No, he hits him on the butt, which is something right. that, you know, right. Strangers were doing that to me in the seventies, you know? Right. <laughs> Having said all of that, I feel like, the- I mean, not strangers, strangers, you know, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't at no. the, the bus stop. A- absolutely. But having said all of that stuff and I, believe in it strongly i would still say that the part of this movie that they didn't seem to have been able to solve as far as far as like well let's transcend a cliche and let's not make this this pat whatever is the ending i mean his sort of when he comes back to the diner and says, you know he says i don't care about the ranch i'll go to monterey with you i'm like what what the fuck are you talking about like I i don't believe this I when he says I don't give a damn about that ranch, I'm like, I'm like, ah, oh, that's a great line. But I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it, it's a it's a tough, and it's almost shot in a tableau, right? Like it's it's really theatrical. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't feel real. Right. But there, it's almost like they're preparing you for that because there's that scene when you you're first in the diner and Vera's doing all this like, you know, crazy sort of charlie chaplin stuff and and they they show alice and she's talking to nobody in particular and she's kind of almost breaking the fourth wall like yeah people are crazy you know it's already kind of theatrical when you're inside the diner uh so for about 50 minutes you're being prepared for that moment that 
isn't as shocking if they weren't preparing you for it in a way. But I see what you mean. I totally see what you mean. I think I think it's where the screenplay is unmasked in a way that that Scorsese and everyone else spends most of the movie covering for. I think you're right. I think that those the scenes in the diner and especially that last scene are where you get the real sense of this is how this was written on the page and this was what Robert Gretchel had in mind. A much more sort of like goofy like you know, almost like Cheers or something where it's like, we're going to meet the regulars at this place and they're going to all wind up being friends. And I love the scene where I love the fact that Flo and Alice finally connect and they connect over a ridiculous joke that she's made and a a line about, uh, what is it? That she went to take a shit in the hog ater? Yeah, she went to take a shit in the hog ater. (laughs) But I love the scene in the bathroom where she has this sort of therapy session with Alice. And, and where they're sunning they, themselves. And they go sunbathing outside. And I love that after that scene plays out strictly in close-ups or even just one close maybe there's a back and forth of their two profiles. It yeah. isn't until the very end of the scene you cut and find out that they're not on a beach or anything. They're not like somewhere. The right? They're out in the back alley. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like they're like in the garbage dump. <laughs> well, you, you know those two... Uh, uh, had known each other for a long time, Diane Ladd and Ellen Burstyn. They'd been friends for about 10 years, and mm. apparently there was some unease and rivalry between them because mm. Ellen Burstyn kept getting better roles mm-hmm. over Diane Ladd. And so uh, it was Burstyn who pushed for Ladd to be in the movie, and so they just used that, like that thing where, you know, they don't like each other at first, and then they understand each other. And that's what you're seeing in that scene. And and uh, that's part of why I think it works so well. Yeah, it works great. It's terrific. But okay. I, I think as far as the ending goes, I, yeah. not only the writer, I, I, but let's blame it on the studio. And I think a studio head is like, we need a happy ending. And I think when you read about Scorsese's look on it, once again, he was approaching it as a genre picture, you know, and he's kind of like, these are some of the, the things that you have to hit. These are the marks that you have to hit in a genre picture like this. And one of them has to be that this is unrealistic, but she has to have some happiness at the end. And I think, you know, he was a little uncomfortable with that, but he was, that's probably the main commercial concession that I think he felt he had to make. He's not above doing stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I think that one thing that he does do is he makes sure that the movie doesn't end on a shot of the three of them. It's it's back to her and Tommy. Christopherson right. is gone after that climax. Right. And, and Tommy can't breathe. That's the last line. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, great movie. You know, Love it. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. And, uh, you know, it has one of the best first kiss scenes. You know, the mm-hmm. way they fetishize his beard. And also, it's. I love scenes where you learn something. And, and you learn about the thing about the turkeys and them drowning themselves in the rain. Mm. Those are the best kind of scenes where you walk away and you go, all right, I learned something from this movie. And plus, fuck Tommy. If he doesn't appreciate being taught Hank Williams, a Hank Williams song by Chris Christopherson, there's no hope for that kid. Yeah. And I love, again, I think this has come up before. I find myself talking about it all the time. I love movies that as much for what they don't do as what they do. And the fact that this doesn't 
have a tragic turn towards the end. It doesn't veer into melodrama. And that the big, the scene where where she and Chris Christopherson get drunk and talk about kissing and she sits on his lap and they're in the kitchen. We get some backstory, but it's nothing shocking or tragic. It's just this wonderful story about her her and her brother doing a, a sort of vaudeville act when they were uh, kids. And um, it's great. I think it's a great a great story that she tells and it's you know it's low stakes i love a low stakes yeah. movie yeah like here yeah you here's don't what, see that no. you don't see too much of that i mean the last person i could think of who was doing that didn't do it for very long was steve cloves you know and mm-hmm. just kind of and that's another guy you'd learn something when you'd watch his movies stuff that you didn't know right i mean i was just watching this movie um uh the one that Andrea Riseborough got nominated for Best Actress for, uh, for, mm-hmm. for Leslie, which is this total indie thing. And it's about an alcoholic who's, you know, struggling with her alcoholism. And the best thing I could say about it at the end of it was that, okay, you know, it's, it's one of these indie dramas, but it, it doesn't do this. It, the, the prime example for me of a movie that, is everything I hate about indie dramas or indie films, right? All kinds is the station agent, <laughs> uh-huh. where it's moving right along. And it's got these charming characters, or whatever, and then all of a sudden there's this whole fucking suicide thing, and it's like, <laughs> hey, I was just enjoying Peter Dinklage and shit. What do I, I need this a for? Fine time. Yeah, <laughs> don't drag me into your fucking Douglas Sirk wet dream. And so this movie doesn't have something like that. No, this is a low stakes, nice. Okay. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have said that they don't make them like that anymore. I, I hate when people say that, but you know, at least it's not this. That's not a movie that you're gonna see in wide release. With no, put up by Warner Brothers. Right. No, I mean, listen, we're living in different times. <laughs> Brother, ain't the truth. Ain't the truth. I can't. So even hey, the, ain't the truth. Uh, I took a look at uh, the New York Times review of this thing, written oh, by Vincent wow. Canby. Oh yeah, what do you have to say? He loved it. Martin Scorsese, the, the young New York director whose Mean Streets was such a smashing New York film, has done it again. He hasn't made another New York film, but he's made an equally riveting, entertaining movie that seems all the more original because it's so different from his last one, at least in its immediate concerns. And that's... You know, that's something I thought about this, too, is I, I, I think a lot about Peter Bogdanovich making um, Targets and then making Last Picture Show and then making uh, What's Up, Doc. And what a mm-hmm. crazy to go from Last Picture Show to What's Up, Doc is to me the most like head spinning, like, wow. Talk about a guy who must have been obsessed with showing his range yeah, uh, early on. And. You know, I I can see the the appeal for Scorsese of jumping on this thing after Mean Streets. It's like, oh fuck this, I'm gonna do a totally different thing, right? And I'm gonna blow everyone's minds. And you would think that people would be reluctant to go along, but right here's Vincent Canby right along with him, like totally. But he was it. also getting a lot of scripts, and they were all gangster scripts, and they were all really bad in his, mm-hmm. the way he tells it. So, you know. He's already made Mean Streets. What's he going to make your stupid gangster movie for? Right. 
He says, don't be put off by reports that Alice doesn't live here anymore as a woman's picture, which makes the movie sound as if it were going to be terribly solemn and humorless and perhaps even a little chauvinistic about women's rights. Dramatized Gloria Steinem, it's not. It's a clear-eyed, tough-talking, often boisterously funny comedy about women and men seen from the point of view of a woman. So he sees it as a comedy. That makes me, that makes me glad. Yeah, it makes me glad, too, because I, I've always seen it as a comedy. But then also watching it, I was like, do people, do people think this is a comedy? Or maybe they don't. I, I don't know. I don't think people think that uh, Raging Bull is a comedy. And I think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Raging Bull is hilarious. I don't know that I would actually call it a comedy. No. <laughs> I don't know if I'd actually call this a comedy, though, either. Here's a movie that we both saw. That I think is billed as a comedy, but is it? That Banshees of Inishirin? Banshees of Inishirin is one of those comedies that everyone goes out out of the theater and goes, wow, that was funny. And I go, really? <laughs> was it? I didn't hear you laugh once, motherfucker. I hate those movies, and I hate people who call those movies funny. On the other hand, you watch a movie like this, you cannot stop laughing. It's funny. Yeah. We got a minute or two, a couple minutes left. Let's take a little peek at what else was playing. Let's do it. Let me share something with you called my screen. What year is this, 1974? 1975. February 2nd, 1975. Okay. Which was a Sunday, but apparently that's when this thing premiered. So here's a beautiful ad for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Thoroughly enjoyable, funny, absorbing, and intelligent. Good. Pauline Kale said that. Um, and right next to that, the equally wonderful Earthquake playing the Zigfeld. <laughs> sense around. In its 11th record-breaking week. A triumph of cinematic technology. Dean Martin, Mr. Rico. Uh, I don't know that one. I don't either, but I'm fascinated. Let's take a closer look. The one thing people hate more than a cop killer is the lawyer who gets him off. Oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, look at this guy. There's a guy with a long gun and some interesting glasses seemingly aimed at maybe... I don't know if that's supposed to be Dean Martin or if the guy in the suit is supposed to be Dean Martin. The guy in the suit's Dean Martin. Yeah, it's a pretty shitty looking... Anyway, Mr. Rico, I have to check that out. Murder on the Orient Express... This is a book I read as a kid, and I'm sure I went to this movie. Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot. Did you ever get into any of that shit? Uh, not really. No. I mean, I'm aware of it, but uh, you haven't seen I was any more of the a insufferable death trip, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you weren't into any of the death trap. Insufferable, I mean, uh, death trap is great. Death trap. Ira Levin. You're an Ira Levin. Death guy. trip is not the same. Uh, yeah, no, that never really. But the me. Kenneth Branagh remakes you haven't seen or enjoyed, have no. you? No. Good. No. No. Richard Bach, is that the guy who wrote... Talk about uh, overrated. Yeah. Richard Bach. So I don't did know. Did write Jonathan Livingston Seagull or something like that? Yeah. Oh, remember that, makes remember sense. that fucking book that was... I remember everyone was everywhere. reading it and I refused yeah. to read it. Yeah. That and The Motorcycle Diaries. Two movie, two books I was like, oh, keep yeah. this away from me. <laughs> Uh, here's a double feature I probably saw: The Sting and American I Graffiti. Still two movies have not you don't made like. it through The Sting. Right, yeah, you don't what's like the wrong with movie. me, man. 
What about the what about all the Soderbergh Oceans movies? You not into those either? I think they're good. Yeah, I like them. I I, well, I you like them watch for the Sting. The... You have to like the Sting. Make it through the I Sting. Li- like. Yeah, it, it would make sense, right? But every yeah. time I put it on, I'm like, ah, this bores me. Another movie I tried the other night, uh, The Hustler. I got about half an hour in. I was like, I'm going to make it this time. And then I just got up and started making a sandwich. I, and then I was I, done. I hear what you're saying about both of those movies and that they are slow by today's standards. And they also are very both slow burning buildups. The Hustler especially has a great, I think, first 20 minutes, the first match and then has a great last half hour and in between you're right and i think I'm it's not, good yeah. but it's uh but it's all that it's all that relationship stuff that middle part worries me yeah yeah you know, i just and, i just decided to turn it off and i put on color money and i was mm-hmm. perfectly happy i was fine and i'm not against slow burns come on you know me i'll sit through four hour movies i got no problem with this thing it's just i don't know what it is i don't know well it's okay you can't like them all. That's Young right. Frankenstein. That's a movie I think is considered a comedy. <laughs> uh, Set a give. And the Street Fighter, Sonny Chiba. He's the natural successor to Bruce Lee. That makes sense. We saw that, right? Yes. Look, the yeah. first X-rated fight scenes in screen history. That was good. But that... Uh... First time I saw that, I didn't get it. But the, when we saw it that last time, I was like, oh, I get this. Right. Lucien, a film by Louis Mal that I don't recall ever hearing of. Is it Lucien or is it Lacombe Lucien? Uh, good question. Oh, yeah, Lacombe Lucien. That's what it is. Hmm, don't know what that means. Woman Under the Influence? There it is. There's the Cassavetes. So Beautiful. was that? Oh, that was 74. Alice was 75, so they didn't have to go against each other. I don't know. Was it 74? So this was just... I don't know. I'm asking. Well, I mean, this is an, this is an ad in February of 75. Yeah, but you, you say some of these movies played for... Right. Weeks I think and you're years. right. I think A Woman Under the Influence could have... E- this could have easily been the end of like a six-month run. Hang on. Woman Under... 74. You are correct. Okay. Uh, the gambler was playing scenes nice. from a marriage front page paperback hero. I don't know what that is. I don't know that one either. All right. Moving on to the next page of ads here. Oh, cause I got some exciting stuff that's coming down the pike here. Towering Inferno. The one that towers above them all. Uh, Lenny, uh, nice. starring Dustin Hoffman, the Odessa file. That's a movie I always was excited when it was on when it was on TV because it just sounded so cool, and I think all the TV ads showed somebody getting shoved in front of a subway. But every time I tried to watch it, I was bored out of my mind. Just boring, yeah. Yeah. Emmanuel, is there a new Emmanuel? Is it any good? I don't know. Okay. No, it's Lady Chatterley's Lover. That's what. That's oh, what it is, right? Yeah. yeah. Was, was Sylvia Christel in both of those? Oh, Who's the star of Lady Chatterley's right. Lover? Lady Chatterley's Lover stars the woman who has been Richard Belzer's partner for decades. Lady Chatterley's Liver. <laughs> That's his partner. <laughs> the Nickel Ride. 
Nope. This looks like, kind of like Paul Newman over here, doesn't it? Looks like Jean-Paul Belmondo. Well, that could be too. The Nickel Ride. I wonder if that was a French film that they just renamed and dubbed or something. People are going to kill me when they hear this. What are you talking <laughs> about, you fucking asshole? How do you not know The Nickel Ride? Uh, Love at the Top. A Page of yeah. Madness with Hiroshima Monomore. I've seen Hiroshima Monomore. It gives a page of madness a certain uh, cachet, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, okay. Oh, here's something. Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins with Alan Arkin, Sally Kellerman, and Mackenzie Phillips. Look at that. I get confused about these different Alan Arkin movies, uh, like Freebie and the Bean. I think I Uh, used to get Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins and Freebie and the Bean confused, although they're very different movies. I've never even heard of this one. Oh, really? I don't know yeah. that I ever... I think this was a movie that I was like, I want to see this, but it was rated R. You know, and in 1975, <laughs> yeah, rated R I was see just out of reach. highlighted that with the hand. <laughs> rated yeah. R, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in 76, I was allowed to see Blazing Saddles, which was probably my first rated R movie in a theater. Good one. Could have been 75, but... Um, I think that it had been around long enough and, and my parents had heard <laughs> enough about it to think like, oh, it'll be all right. It's just, it's rated R for fart jokes. Yeah. Or something. I mean, Young Frankenstein is rated PG for rape. Yeah. That's a, it's, you make a good point there. Thank you. Uh, do we, do we, oh, that's the review of Tough Talking. This is the review. Tough Talking Alice. Right next to a, an article about Lee Strasberg uh, the, being in Godfather 2. Nice, and it has a picture of when they have the water fight. Yes, which is which a great is something scene. my mom and I used to do, and it only just occurred to me last night that maybe she got it from this movie. Huh. But we would have water fights all the time in the house, and it was always a, no, no, Scott, you've gone too far. You've, you, It's over now. Stop. And then she would do something, and we'd keep going. Did it escalate to the scale of the, their water fight? Because their yes. water fight goes pretty it always. Far. It always escalated to that. And there was always a fair amount of cleaning up afterwards. I had a water fight, but it was at a bachelor party at a hotel uh, that spanned, like, I think, three different hotel rooms or something into the hallway. It was was a real mess. But, yeah. Um, Godfather 2 was playing. Report to the Commissioner. Fellini's Amarcord, a uh, bunch of X-rated stuff. Yeah. Again. Paperback Hero. There's that Paperback Hero. Oh, oh, about. oh. Care, Care, Care Dulé. Hey, hey, hey. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Ashley. Ashley. Wait a minute. This looks like uh, this looks like a ripoff of like uh, Midnight Cowboy, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I thought it was a Western, but now I see the this jacket. Every woman's had one. Every man's been one once. Oh, wow. This looks like better than Midnight Cowboy. I know. Care if that's Care Dulé, he's wearing the craziest outfit. He's wearing like a like a satin kind of varsity jacket and a cowboy hat. It's like, yeah. And I don't Great know if these silence are shorts. Meets gr- American graffiti. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever yeah. she's wearing, I'm more interested in though. Well, it's like Midnight Cowboy, but she is Ratso Rizzo. Somehow, I, don't know. I uh, sign me up. 
All the problems I have with Midnight Cowboy, they've they've figured out. Yeah. Unfortunately, the commissioner has more than oh, one sh- ad, and this one seems to feature Yafet Kodo, who I didn't even remember was in the movie. Dude, um, everything he's in is amazing. Yeah. So get this, though. So here I am cruising the New York Times looking at the movie ads, and then I'm like, well, it looks like we're done. And then I go over to the music section. and yeah, This always happens. First of all, there's this great Sam Goody ad with these old hi-fi systems. Goody. That I would love to go out. I would love to go out and buy any of these for these prices right now. Mm-hmm. So cute. Harmon Carden. Pretty good. Advent. I still have some Advent speakers from the 70s somewhere in my house. But then, this is where it gets really good. Oh, then then there's another section of the Sam Goody ad where you see album prices. You know, and $7 albums are on sale for yeah. $4.77. Like, you can't buy an album for more than 8 bucks. Yeah. Back in the day. It's great. And, and why are they so much more expensive now? Like, what, have the costs of any of this stuff gone up for the manufacturers? No. Yeah, Maybe. It's possible. They've really got us bent over a barrel. But here we go. Look at this huge article about Led Zeppelin. There's art in Led Zepp's heavy metal hullabaloo. But the reason this article is appearing is because they are on the eve of their six-night sold-out run at Madison Square Garden. The longest run ever attempted in the local area by a rock act that has chosen to play only in giant-sized arenas. How do you like that? We're on the eve of Song Remains the Same. That's great. Very long article that says absolutely nothing, but it's fun to see. Some people could say the same about Song Remains the Same. Yeah, some people could say that about that movie. How do you feel about that movie? I I think I'd be into a cut that that doesn't have the fantasy sequences so I can enjoy the show. And, or maybe I'd like, to, I'd like it separated into two movies. I'd like the Led Zeppelin dream sequence movie and then the Led Zeppelin concert movie. I don't need yeah. the, I don't need the mix and match. Is that what Metallica was trying to do a couple of years ago whenever they made that thing that was also had like sort of a fictional interlocking story in between concert footage? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know what, I, do you know I, what movie I'm talking about? I, I, I into think the so. dream, into the realm, or in the realm of the I senses. I think they played some Metallica. scenes from it when we were on tour with them. I'm, I'm not sure. Hmm. Hmm. I'm not sure. Well, there we go. One step closer to 70 movies that we saw in well, the 70s. What number is this? 49. So we're we're way over the hump. So. There's really no reason why this. Hump. There's no reason why this podcast can't end in the year 2023. Another 21 episodes or so, and we can call That's it a, a day. How many episodes did we do last year? I don't know. Well, that's probably the reason why. That's I think you start. I think you started on episode like 24, 25. Yeah, but that was like three years ago when well, we were in the middle three. of the. Wasn't three. Worldwide pandemic. Right. So you're saying you don't see us getting to 70 in the year 2023. At our current Never mind about our current pace. Forget everything that's happened so far. 
No, I don't see it happening. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that's fine. Doesn't it's possible, to. but I, uh, I don't see it happening. And you've done a couple of doubles, haven't you? So technically, you're at 50 now. I think 51. that... Well, that's true. I think the I think we've only done one double. I think yeah. when you when you and I did, uh, uh-huh. what was it? Black when Sunday. Did we do? Oh uh, no no no! It was the two Charlton Hestons. It was Omega Man and uh, right. Yeah, I don't think it should count as two. Okay, it should count then as one. We're at, then we're at forty nine. All right, all right. Well, in the year forty nine, forty nine. Okay, cool, great. See you next time. See you next time. All right. Thanks everybody. Bye.